Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Thank you to Columbia University's Insight Center and the American Assembly. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the director of We Be Imagining, and I'm here with my co-host, Alain Mendel. What's up, Alain? Hi, I'm Alain. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech. I, uh, I use he, him pronouns. I'm all right. I slammed my knee today. It really hurts. But other than that, I'm doing great. In the lab? No, on the, on, the, on the way home, I was like rushing home and I just like banged it into a pipe. It's very dumb. It's not a good look. <laughs> I was about to say, like you're not doing hard labor, like building robots. Um, but I'm super excited. Today we have here Megan Wolf, who is the chair of mental health policy at DeWitt Wallace Institute for the History of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. She authored The Myth of the Actuary, Life Insurance, and Frederick L. Hoffman's Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro in 2006 as a PhD student in Mailman Public School of, uh, School of Health. And also, Dan, and Dan, I apologize because I feel like I might screw up the pronunciation of your last name. Uh, but Dan Book, who is the Associate Professor of History at Colgate University, he re- researches the history of bureaucracies, quantification, and other modern things shrouded in cloaks of boringness. His work investigates the way that corporations, states, and the experts they employ have used, abused, made, and remade the categories that structure our daily experiences of being human, and is the author of the 2015 book, How Our Days Became Numbered, Risk and the Rise of the Statistical Individual. And maybe beginning with you, Megan, um, could you say a little bit about yourself outside of your kind of formal bio? Uh, sure. Well, in the time since I wrote that article, I wound up uh, expanding it into my dissertation, uh, and it, it looked into the way in which the language of risk moved into medicine itself, uh, and how the worlds of insurance and the worlds of medicine kind of interacted. Uh, after that, since then, I've been looking mostly at social medicine and uh, the ways in which people have tried to make medicine more effective and efficient by actually delivering it um, in a timely way and in an accessible way. Um, beyond that, um, I work at the Institute for the History of Psychiatry. I do a lot of policy stuff looking at uh, mental health and how um, laws affect mental health and how uh, basically the systems governing who is able to access it and how shape what happens, what the outcomes are. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Dan, would you like to say a little bit more about yourself and your work? Uh, yeah. Hi. Thank you so much to both of you for having me here. I am. Um, I'm, I'm distracted by the earlier stories already. Um, Elon's knee. Um, it reminds me that I about a year ago, a little maybe a little more than a year ago, I think probably broke my foot. Although I never went to a doctor to ask about it uh, because I was sitting in a New York public library um, at, on the children's floor with my child, and my leg fell asleep. When I stood up, I fell on my foot and broke my foot in the library, which is a very scholarly injury. Um, <laughs> like like paper cuts or, or lungs. Um, this is a very exciting um, grouping that we have here because uh, Megan and I met, if I recall properly, inside a life insurance company archives in a Long Island city where we were, we both happened on the same day to be attempting to get into these records. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's very fun to be brought back, even in this virtual space, to be That is talking. true. We, also, we, even, we discovered at that time that we even had the same type of cat. It was a weird coincidence. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, and- I'm... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so so that's the the, the I'm a, I'm a historian who um, I studied mathematics and but I was but I never found it like it had it quite enough 
um, to do with what is actually happening in life. And so that led me into thinking about the way that mathematics play and numbers play larger roles in our society and how what it means to be a person. And that's what I do. Dope. I was just going to say that I'm really excited to have you guys here. I was telling before um, you came on Zencaster, I was just telling Megan that how I originally encountered her piece was through thinking about child welfare and looking at this endorsement of actuarial versus clinical decision making and reading Pauli Meal and trying to find all of these the different adjacent work. Um, and I think that a lot of the, I guess, public and academic imagination is around this kind of spectacular forms of violence, the, the drones, the facial recognition. But I loved your bio because it's exactly that, the boring things, looking through the archives of the life insurance company, reading um, public contracts and these kind of like dully written things that kind of give you the fuller pi picture of not just what these things were in theory, but as you say in your book, Dan, in practice. I think um, if if nothing, if we, there's so many things to have been learned this summer, but uh, the the defund police movement, amongst other things, I, I hope will um, open our eyes anew to the importance of budgeting and budgets as a thing that ought to be studied. And the accounting and budgeting is one of those deeply shrouded things uh, that is just so fundamentally important. Uh, but you know, we, we are kept out. I think probably on purpose uh, to, to, you know, there's a, a use to trying to get our eyes to glaze over with technical details because it can then keep us out of the places that people don't want us to be lurking and looking. Well, precisely. That really reminds me of earlier in the year, I saw a talk between Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Miriam Kaba, who wrote the um, piece in the paper of record, the New York Times, uh, defending the case for prison abolition. And yes, that's exactly what we mean when we say abolish the police and abolish prisons. And they made this point about the, the city and state budget tells you how they want to allocate resources and what they prioritized as a society. And so much of this like quantification of human life is coupled with austerity politics. And so one of the things I notice about both of you is that the, the article and your book open up with um, kind of this, the origins of life insurance during this like late to post reconstruction um, period. And so I was hoping that you could both talk a little bit about um, kind of the worldview or ideology that's embedded into this actual actuarial decision making as it's coupled with anti-blackness. Um, and I know, Megan, before before Dan came on the call, we were talking a little bit, even how in the piece you don't say white supremacy so much and that you're citing a lot of pieces from the 1970s and how the climate has changed. Um, so maybe beginning with you and then Dan, I would like to hear from you as well, kind of what what is that relationship there sure um so in the first round of, of working on this paper i recall having to think hard about what were the ideologies that were dominant at the time that hoffman was writing what was he absorbing and what was he deploying and i had to work really hard to keep my commentary to that historical moment because i found it difficult to write about anything pertaining to race, race relations in the contemporary moment and, and use words like white supremacy. You would see reader, you would see other students, you would see people in the room sort of flinch because you were setting out a very political presentist point of view uh, if you talked about that. So I remember hewing very closely to what I was reading in the history. 
Um, and then when I was, I was looking at some of the stuff again in preparation for today, and I was kind of blown away by how white supremacy was actually a term that um, was deployed a lot in these original original pieces, particularly Frederick Hoffman, who is this actuary who wrote a treatise called Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro, uh, in which he tried to demonstrate that in, uh, African-Americans were uninsurable because they were going extinct. It was a, not a new hypothesis, but he was the first person to try to put uh, scientific argument behind it. And he just loaded up on statistics and deployed them. And he didn't do it very well, but he did it with such enthusiasm and so many statistics that uh, people really loved the piece. In any case, um, he talks about white supremacy actually in the piece and in his other writings from the time. I was particularly struck by this letter I had set aside for myself while I was writing that he wrote to his, his wife while he was writing. And he says, um, this will be a paper exclusively statistical and as little as possible I shall advance my views of my own. But I shall so arrange the statistical evidence to make clear the present day tendency of the mongrel breed who fain would try to make believe that they were possessed of some higher innate virtues than the white race. But I shall make clear another point, though I shall not say so in words, and that is the moral justification of white people of the South in the course that they have pursued since Reconstruction days to maintain white political and social supremacy. Now, his wife was a Southern belle. She was uh, Georgian born, uh, and she was in the Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, he was clearly trying to please her, but he was also, he was really clearly buying into an ideology of blatant political and social white supremacy. Uh, and, you know, we, we study these documents looking, you know, between the lines for it, but it was right out there, right on the very first page. So that was interesting to me. Well, and I mean, I'll follow right to where Megan is leading us because it's a great place. Um, one of the interesting things about Hoffman, and I remember Megan in her uh, piece uh, mentions this, that he is pitching himself. He's he is part of the way that he's getting airtime, uh, or rather, getting a place in the in a, in a series of elite journals, and then in the uh, publications of the American Economic Association, is by pitching himself as a a foreigner, a German who does not have any kind of um, any, any um, particular position as a as someone with a privileged capacity to be objective in dealing with this data. And that's not an, an abnormal position at all. Um, in Khalil Muhammad, in his book, The Condemnation of Blackness, it talks about Hoffman as well and, and notes that uh, the, the guy who got Hoffman into the American Economic Association's publications was a guy named Walter Wilcox. And he too, at the same time, was, was deeply embedded in trying to make social science more objective. And all of these folks who are making social science more objective, not all, but many, many of the central figures making social science more objective were also explicitly, uh, explicitly held to white supremacist positions, uh, to a, a firm demarcation of races and a clear sense that there was a hierarchy within that demarcation and they did work, which set up and made clear that there was a, a, a different trajectories, right? The, the ultimate argument that Hoffman makes in Race, Traits, and Tendencies is that the outside of slavery, African-Americans will go extinct as a people. 
and that's um, a set of claims. We could talk about where it comes from exactly, but it's a set of claims that's clearly meant to to set a contrast from what he sees as the natural ascent of the white race in the United States. No, thank you. And I'm also curious about this desire to count and calculate Black life. And I appreciate that you both pull in Du Bois on this. Um, and at the same time, there's such a level of the unseen, this like constant desire to calculate Black people, but on this other hand, this refusal to disaggregate the data and see the causality um, that led to kind of uh, the 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 data that was saying that you know people were more likely to die or die earlier or you know be more disease ridden like this refusal to deal with causality in the data sets. I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. I can jump in briefly uh, to, to get to get this rolling. Um, du Bois is a critic of Hoffman. So is Kelly Miller, who is um, maybe a less famous black public intellectual, but who was at the time well, a very famous and important public intellectual and also a pretty accomplished mathematician. And they both come out and fight with Hoffman about his use of statistics. Um, what Essentially what Hoffman does is he takes a series of older tropes and ideas that of inevitable black extinction that were developed in slavery by Southern physicians as a justification of slavery. And he takes that narrative and he threads it through with a whole bunch of different um, sources of data that he gathers from throughout the South and little pieces here and here and there from the North. Uh, there's never a sufficient amount of data to say anything really, like he's really piecing things together. Um, but he's making a case that uh, his contemporaries want to hear. He's making a case very explicitly for life insurance companies that justifies a series of actions that they're taking, uh, primarily their decision, the decision of a number of companies, including Prudential, which hires Hoffman, to abandon the sale of policies to African-Americans. And again, that's a that's another story we can dig into. Yeah, I actually was really struck. I think Dan is absolutely right about all of that. I was struck as I was thinking about this again um, and reviewing the earlier chapters of Dan's book, which is, it's been a while. Um, they're very, very well done. Um, I was struck by how much insurers seem to be interested in looking at the wrong causality of illness and death uh, and premature uh, demise. Um, what they're doing in this period is they're they're looking at the fact that the accident um, rate in the United States, accident and death in general, is is up. It's an industrial period. People have need for a level of security, uh, and they're looking at well, how can we provide this and make a profit? Well, looking at the mortality tables that they had, they knew quite clearly that um, um, mor mortality was tied to age. Um, and it was also tied to re region. So the South was more insalubrious. There were a lot of mosquitoes. You, you know, from, from our perspectives, it, it's probably pretty clear why New Orleans wasn't such a great place to live because yellow fever, malaria, et cetera, the death rate was much higher there. But in order to sell policies and make a profit, the insurance industry decides that they need to stratify by social group. They need to strip out one group of people from another. There's this kind of question of 
you know, the insulation from risk is a necessary commodity. Should it be provided publicly as a social good or privately for profit? And they are providing it privately for profit. And in order to do that, they have to find the wealthier people and give them an incentive um, to buy in. And so they're stripping out the classes that are doing necessary and important work from which the upper classes are also benefiting and saying, oh, it's, you know, they're the problem. They're at risk. And, uh, you know, you're not. So they, they have this uh, inherent interest in not really looking at the social reasons for it, but simply rather the, you know, locating the risk in, in the people themselves. They're not saying, oh, these people are the problem because they're working on the railroads and their, their mortality rate is 40% higher. They're saying, well, these people are the problem because they are intemperate. They have poor life habits, and maybe it's also about race, and we'll investigate that. Yeah, maybe we should give uh, our listeners just like the, the very briefest of uh, background on how insurance worked back then, because uh, it'll help. <laughs> we should, people, yeah. Hope, uh, go ahead, go ahead. That's great. Say what, what Megan's doing. Um, the in the early nineteenth century, so the only way that someone would buy a life insurance policy was essentially by paying once a year or sometimes twice a year, a very large premium. And then on the occasion of their death or sometimes on the occasion of giving back the policy, they would get some amount of money back or their beneficiaries would get some amount of money back. Because that was a large amount of money, the people who got insured were for the most part, wealthy individuals or well enough to do merchants or landed people but tended to be people who had an income coming in from some kind of labor. It tended to be people who didn't have wealth from some other place because otherwise that wealth would support their families after they died. These were people who depended upon their bodies as professionals, as other folks, uh, to bring in cash that was going to support their families. The other group of people in the early 19th century who were where there was enough capital around to pay that kind of insurance were enslaved people. So in the 1850s, especially, there's a large uptick in policies taken out on enslaved lives, usually in the case of uh, people who've been sent into more urban areas in the South to do work like building railroads or to work in factories, people who are hired out, not working on plantations, but rather working in cities. And they would have uh, life insurance taken out on them by where the beneficiary was the owner of the enslaved person. So that's what's that's those are the folks who are in who are um, insured in the early 19th century after the Civil War, and then after uh, a panic in 1873, life insurance companies realized they want to expand and they want to start insuring more people, and so they create a new kind of insurance they called industrial insurance, and basically it operates on the principle that they send lots of agents around knocking door to door in all neighborhoods, even the poor neighborhoods. And people give a nickel to that person once a week and everyone gives the same nickel, but then how much money they get when they die is what's determined by the actuarial tables, by the, the what's determined by the, the contract that's given. And so in what, what Megan's talking about is then once you're uh, insuring all classes of people uh, that changes some of the ideas about how to discriminate and how to change policy uh, premiums. And 
part of what starts happening in the late 1870s or in the early 1880s is that um, insurance companies decide that they're going to keep accepting that same nickel from black policyholders who we don't think they probably were thinking we're going to be involved at all, but they're going to then pay a smaller amount back to the beneficiaries of those individuals when they die. Uh, and so that's how, how race in a different way becomes an important category that they're going to think about um, using for discrimination. But also, as Megan points out, they have a lot of choice, actually, about the categories they should decide to focus on and how they decide to discriminate. And for instance, region, and that focus on, like, for instance, the South and other places, would provide all kinds of other perfectly good, interesting, causal reasons for discrimination. And so part of the story here is trying to figure out why and how the insurers pick the categories they choose to focus on to look for causal explanations and where they decide to then impose a penalty and where they don't decide to do that. In the Well said. Sorry, go ahead, Megan. Oh, Dan really summarized it very well right there. You know, they, so they have, they're incented to look at the wrong causality from my perspective. It's the wrong causality because it, it just, it overlooks, it tries to locate the source of risk in the individual themselves and not in the social conditions that they're subjected to. Yeah. It's, it's a little unsurprising that like this hasn't seemed to have gone away <laughs> at all. Um, I think that uh, one of the things, Dan, you talk about in the, in the second chapter of your book, right, which fundamentally at its core is, is really about the, the, the making of, you know, American citizens as statistical individuals, is that when this was happening kind of like at the, at the birth of kind of the, the widespread insurance industry, that this was not the norm and the kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote, scientific way of, of knowing was not necessarily the default position and how... Uh, the fact that there were alternative ways of of understanding the world allowed people to push back in in bureaucratic ways, but but in in legislative ways. Um, and I, I don't know; it, it contrasts a little bit with the world I, I feel like we live in now, where you kind of have this discourse of uh, believing science, where where it's kind of science is treated as just a, another uh, almost religion rather than a kind of mechanism for analyzing the world. I, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I do think that there's more, I maybe, I might draw a slightly different moral from that story. And let me try this out for you and see what you think. So I would say that if we looked at folks like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois or Kelly Miller, they responded in the trust science sort of way to Hoffman, right? They rolled out their own statistics. And Du Bois right, is, is, a, is just as much a leading social scientist as someone like Walter Wilcox, but without the white supremacy. Um, but, so, but Du Bois really wants, especially at that point, to be engaging in this fight in the same terms and wants to win it in the data. Uh, and he's got good data with which he can like at least make a claim and he can poke holes in Hoffman's data because Hoffman's data is very holy. Um, that's not ultimately what, I mean, the, that, that is not the mechanism by which anti-discrimination happens. Uh, anti-discrimination happens because um, legislators in Massachusetts, uh, led by 
Julius Chappelle, um, this fascinating character uh, who was born, I think, in South Carolina. And so I'm guessing was probably an enslaved person in South Carolina. He's an African-American man, uh, comes to Massachusetts at some point, I think probably after the war, and is elected to the legislature there. And he successfully leads a fight on the floor to have um, discrimination based on race by insurance companies banned. And the argument, though, is decidedly, there, there are a variety of ways of pitching the argument, but at some level, what he says is that it's, it's a matter of right. This isn't a matter, of, whereas the company insists it's a matter of data or a matter of business. And he says it's a matter of right, like it's insisting on a different kind of logic. And I think today, actually, I'd say that there's a, something to be learned here is that it's hard to win from the position that Du Bois and Kelly Miller take. Um, because the because it's not necessarily about who has the better data. It's the, the structure is often rigged from the beginning. That certainly is what was happening with the life insurance system. Uh, so it's much better to to choose an entirely different logic, right? Like so, for me, the thing that I was most excited about when the um, Affordable Care Act passed was that it included a rejection of the principle of risk rating. In terms of thinking about people protecting people with pre-existing conditions, and that struck me as a really important blow um, to the way in which that risk, as a as a logic, is allowed to make important decisions about access that shouldn't be given to a logic of risk. Yeah, the Affordable Care Act also was was strong on the compulsory aspect which was something that reformers were talking about during this turn of the century period in the 1900s. They, this argument about whether life insurance, what later becomes health insurance, should be compulsory, um, and then should it be government provided or should it be the private industry? Um, but the compulsory aspect of it, so you don't have anybody fleeing the risk pool, uh, was a really important piece. And it was exciting when, uh, when the Affordable Care Act tried to incorporate that. No, that's interesting. I mean, on Du Bois, I mean, on one level, like I love, I love, love, love Du Bois. I mean, The Soul of Black Folk is like one of my favorite books of all time. And I feel like there's a kind of re-remembering happening about Du Bois's history as a data scientist and the, you know, the leading sociologist and the insistence on having the superior data set of fighting on those terms feels like a level of I don't know, consideration or acceptance about having to prove this racial ep- uh, racial uplift or the fitness of black people on those terms. And so I can kind of, I can, I, I, I'm not sure that I have the same background to know, but I feel like I can see the point that you're making. The other thing that I was thinking about was just this individual individualness of risk and thinking about um, like the point that Megan that you made about trying to understand, you know, early demise during a time of northern industrialization and thinking about COVID is that, you know, even if you're less likely to die or to even contract COVID because you are a white collar worker who can work from home, we're also deeply interdependent. And so the essential workers are more likely, you know, to have a higher mortality rate. You know, black people and undocumented people are going to have a higher mortality rate, but the whole system can't function without them. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I'm just curious about the way COVID-19 and what it means to live through this particular pandemic 
um, is impacting kind of what you guys are thinking about? That's a really good question. COVID-19 has really laid bare the importance of social equity. I'm not ever really sure anymore what people mean when they say social equity. So I could walk it a step backward and say respect for all work and respect for all workers. Uh, And of course, that gets sliced down across race and class pretty fast. You know, work that is not respected tends to be more menial and tends to be the work that can be accessed by people of color and people of lower class standing. So, you know, it's all, it all becomes a a mesh, but we're being forced to recognize the importance of that labor and the importance of the people who do that labor and their dignity, which is, I think, something that we've, we've been too hyper capitalist for the last probably century and a half, or maybe two centuries um, to recognize uh, yeah, I think that's, I agree with a lot of that. Um, for At one level, I'll just say, I, living through the beginning of this pandemic, especially, I had the thought like, oh, well, clearly no one could argue against universal health insurance now, right? Like, how, how it, one can't possibly imagine that, like, we can't see how interdependent we are, how much we depend on on everyone, regardless of the kind of work they do regardless of their class status, like that everybody deserves and needs access to this because we're all in the same boat together. Um, And like, as I'm having that thought, I remember that the last time there was a pandemic like this in the United States in 1918 was also immediately, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but it was like either immediately right before or right after the the last great attempt at universal health care failed. Uh, and that failed in part because of the efforts of our friend Frederick Hoffman. Um, but so I, I remember I sent a note to Beatrix Hoffman, who's not at all related to Frederick, but who is another historian who's written about his work uh, and who's written a lot about the history of attempts to um, spread healthcare to more people, and uh, and asked her what she, if she knew like how to solve this mystery of why it was that after a pandemic, in the midst of a pandemic people would turn away from healthcare and from a more expansive use of healthcare. And I don't think we ever came to an answer as a question that still is, is very much in my mind. And yet you see it all around you, right? Like you see how counter logics run instead. We bang pots for essential workers, um, but then we set up these, the, the response in many cases to COVID has been greater medical surveillance and then greater forms of sorting and discriminating based upon it. So, right, like you, you try to, you, you, the fear of using antibody tests as a reason to then force some people to work and not others, uh, resistance to other sorts of um, communal uh, forms of resort, like canceling rent or uh, like providing more um, economic support that would allow people, allow more people to not work. Um, it's it's kind of it, it, I mean devastating but fascinating to see it play that same kind of set of arguments and different converging logics play out and just to see how powerful like could you just said that individualizing logic is how how often how easy it is in the end to turn it back onto people like it's their responsibility to take care of themselves and not our responsibility to take care of ourselves together 
Yeah, it's interesting. In a way, those converging logics have been what has animated the discourse on this podcast. We actually started in response to COVID-19, um, in part because we had planned all these live events and then the shelter in place order happened and we were like, well, what are we going to do? Let's do a podcast, which I feel like there's also like an interesting information science ecosystem that like developed in parallel um, to the pandemic. And that's one of the maybe silver linings to the situation. But we, you know, when I when I think back to the early days, initially it was about the disproportionate rates of COVID-19 transmission in prisons, uh, the whole debate around contact tracing apps and looking at Singapore. And is that, you know, is COVID-19 intervention, is that a reasonable premise to institute kind of biosurveillance? Um, and, and also separately, Megan, I have to tell you, I had no idea that a history of psychiatry existed at Cornell. And then I was like stumbling around and I found this fact sheet that you had written about COVID-19 and mental health during the pandemic. And I really appreciated this opening quote in that um, from In the Plague by Camus talking about um, a, pestilence, a pestilence isn't a thing made to man's measure. Therefore, we tell ourselves that a pestilence is a mere bo uh, bogey of the mind, a bad dream that will pass away. And I just felt like that was really prescient in the in the sense of like, you know, everybody now has been all of a sudden has become like a data modeling ep uh, expert <laughs> is, is, is having some of these debates. And I'm just wondering, you know, this this social contract that we've had with scientists, that there's this level of certainty and predictability, you know, where do we move forward in this conversation during this kind of infinite pandemic? The, the guy at the bodega talking about the r not value is like <laughs> the, the image that comes to mind. I, I was so struck when it dawned on me that there were all kinds of folks using a phrase, flatten the curve. And to as a historian of quantification, uh, right, who specializes in boring things, I'm not used to people speaking my language uh, all the time. <laughs> And it was really striking. So, so I did spend quite a bit of time trying to think, like, what does it mean that we're spending all this time doing this kind of uh, work, thinking about data all the time? Uh, I think the fact that the for those who are in the U.S. or who are following the U.S. election right there again, uh, we can see people obsessing about data on their computers, watching returns come in, projecting forward in a very similar set of practices, I think, to the way people were have treated their COVID dashboards as they've been doing this kind of work. And um, I guess I'll, I'll make a pitch, especially for your listeners, to there's, there's some work by some scholars in science technology studies who have really convinced me that... Um, the great trick that the data makers pulled was convincing us that data wasn't emotional. Um, and, and our own experience of it just proves that that's clearly not, not true, right? Like the way if you think about the reasons you look at a COVID um, dashboard and the kind of um, fascinated and terrified study that one makes or during the election, watching different states returns come in, like there's all kinds of, of anxiety and energy built into that. Um, but so uh, Jacqueline Werneman's book, Numbered Lives, or Michelle Murphy and a whole bunch of different books has really helped to help me, especially to think about the uh, effective value of quantification and numbers. And um, I mean, in, in many ways, the story begins with the way in which 
people, whether they're counting plague deaths or they're creating models about population growth and population control, they're attempting to impose a sense of control uh, on a very messy world. And the, so the primary effective value that data often has is, it, is it, it's meant to like allow those in power or who are near power to feel like things can be controlled, can be seen, can fit in neat grids, uh, even though our own experience of the world is constantly the failure of our classification systems to actually capture the, the mess that's around us. Yeah, Danielle Offrey, who is a, uh, uh, a physician at Bellevue and also a writer, coined a really good phrase for this, which she calls emotional epidemiology, about how people respond to new health threats. Generally, she says they basically come in terrified, and then gradually, as they get used to the concept or they get used to what is risk and what is not, they, they gradually kind of calm down. Um, it seems like the emotional epidemiology of COVID has followed pretty much exactly what she talks about. In fact, I almost I almost wrote about her in that COVID fact sheet, where initially we didn't know what to expect. Our emotional epidemiology was really high. Uh, everybody was afraid of any level of exposure, but we didn't quite even know what exposure meant. Um, and then sort of in the model of HIV AIDS, as we became more used to the threat, it became less scary and we moved over to more of a harm reduction model of saying, well, you know, I understand these risks and so I'll do X and Y and that'll keep me safe enough. Um, it's that, um, that concept I think might have something to do with how people are able to um, <laughs> vote against social insurance in the midst of a pandemic or right on the heels of it. Your emotional epidemiology will eventually lead you to a kind of what we're now calling pandemic fatigue where you say, all right, well, I'm managing this enough and I'm not going to think about it any further. Uh, and thinking about passing social insurance right after World War I and right after the, the flu um, was probably not something that people were really eager to engage in. They'd had enough. They were, they were overwhelmed. I will also add that this, the period of COVID has been a fascinating time to be a medical historian. Um, you know, when people ask me what I do and I say, I'm a medical historian. Now they, they, if I'm in person at all, they really look at me and say, wow, so what do you make of this? Um, and so it's actually, there's another sort of irony on that, which I found that most of the people I trained with or knew had sort of, um, uh, a part of medical history that was the most interesting to them, whether it was the Jonestown flood or some kind of a, some kind of an epidemic or a disaster that they really gravitated to while they were studying. And mine happened to have been the Spanish flu. Uh, the 1917, 1918 was sort of my pet preoccupation uh, as I was studying. So it's, it has been a very interesting time. Both, both uh, uh, Megan and Dan, you both talk about kind of Hoffman's library at, at certain points where you know, he just had both, you know, you talk about his kind of statistical enthusiasm, like how much data he had at a time when there was like a total lack and like dearth of data that it seemed to exist in the kind of uh, systematic way that, that he was uh, attempting to collect or, or intentionally collecting in certain ways. Um, but we kind of now live in this world where there's just like intense amounts of data. And I think this does kind of connect to the person staring at the COVID dashboard or refreshing 538 that 
there will there will always be the data to tell the story you're interested in telling. You don't need, you know, like a a massive collection of informants to go out and collect the data that like pre-confirms your biases. <laughs> that's, that's true, but it helps. And that's actually what Hoffman was doing when he published Race Traits. Uh, you know, he had more data amassed than anybody had ever seen on this subject. Uh, there had been, you know, a long kind of complaint that they, they, the insurers suspected that African-Americans were a, a poor risk, as they said, but they couldn't prove it. Hoffman didn't prove it either, but he just provided so much data and then said that it was conclusive that the only people who really took the time to analyze it were Dubois and Kelly Miller. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, um, we could draw an interesting comparison to think about the kinds of data sources that different folks could bring to bear on that question. So um, the Prudential is one of these nickel life insurance companies that specializes in these industrial policies. Um, so they, in the 1870s, open up and are kind of surprised by the fact that they get a bunch of black policyholders. And uh, I think Megan made this argument, I think it's probably right, is that they, they're they're afraid of being cast. They're afraid of losing white customers, but because of having um, black customers. And so at, at some level, they're, they're interested in trying to figure out what to do about this. And so they, uh, the company Prudential does a study based on about uh, six or seven years of data, not very much. And there wouldn't have been um, very much there. It's never published. So none of us really get to see it. And their actuaries, their, their folks inside use what's called the company experience. And for a life insurance company, the experience is like the most important data. It's their internal records of these are the people about which they know everything, right? These are the people who we've insured. We often got to give them medical examinations in the process. We know exactly how old they are. We know how long they live. And then we know when they die. And so that kind of data, which is like very good, is especially useful for them setting these, for drawing the curves to figure out how long other similar people might be expected to live. So experience data is really good, and that's what companies are supposed to use to set their um, to set their rates. And so they don't really have that much or enough, but they what they have they they claim is enough to be able to say they're going to discriminate against African American applicants. Then New Jersey is one of these states that follows Massachusetts' lead and refuses to allow there to be discrimination based on race. And at that point, Prudential says, fine, okay, we're just not going to sell to any Black applicants any longer. So we're not allowed to discriminate in rates, but you didn't say we have to sell to anybody. So we're just going to stop the selling pretty much entirely, refuse to sell insurance to a whole class of people. Um, And that's when they get interested in Hoffman's research, right? Hoffman doesn't have experience data. He's not... The, he's not like gathering all this administrative set of administrative records. Instead, he is, uh, as Alonso is like, he's a library maker. He gathers documents and stuff from all over places and then cuts and pastes it all together to make a, to make a set of arguments about what is happening to the race. And that's what he uses to, to justify the, the movement of the life insurance companies to abandon a whole group of people. Yeah, they really brought him out right after the uh, New Jersey passed its legislation, which was in May of 1894. In July, they uh, they asked 
uh, Hoffman to come up on an expense paid trip to Newark uh, in New York City to discuss the statistical methods that he'd employed in an earlier article. Uh, and uh, only a few weeks later, he uh, he gets hired. No, I was just going to say that sounds exactly right, because the thing that I was going to push back on you, uh, Elon, is just in terms of what data we have. Yeah, there's massive amounts of data, but for whom are there missing data sets? And even thinking about the emotional response to the pandemic, like who's afraid, who's opting out of in-person learning and is doing remote like way before it's looking like schools are going to close here in New York City, at least. Um, you know, black people, the the children of the essential workers, either out of fear of contracting COVID and not having access to a hospital that's gonna have not gonna have a podiatrist treating you as they did in um, Brooklyn Hospital <laughs> during the height of the pandemic. Um, but I think that it is different. It's differentiated based off of race. Like, who do we know about? Even if even if they're constantly surveilling black people, what do they really know? Even the stuff that we're seeing coming out of Rikers, what was the source? Like you said, Dan, it was from the the Department of Corrections. And so there's not a lot of like independent sources of data. And I just wonder how the second wave is going to go, because from my experience, you know, I think a lot of white people in particular right now feel like this is going to this is a sad thing that's happening to other people. <laughs> like, I, I think there's a lot of people out here feeling invincible um, and others feeling afraid. And so I'm I'm curious how that's going to play out. I did just out of curiosity look up and Forbes did a recent uh, piece about life insurance and COVID-19, everything you need to know. So it seems like insurance <laughs> policies are not immediately changing anything but they have a set of like COVID-19 questions kind of similar to like if you're entering a hospital you know have you traveled anywhere outside of the country do you have could you have come in contact with anyone with COVID-19 and so the result of that right now is that they'll say they'll postpone your application they're not going to deny it but they're like "Mm, let's see how this is going to play out and so that comes back to that Camus quote (laughs) I just feel like we're coming up the like limitations of measuring all of this stuff to begin with. And I think there's this growing awareness that there is not necessarily this clear, obvious new normal. And I don't know, a reliance on public health experts, but then a questioning of like a little bit, where is the certainty in the midst of all of this? So I don't know, within that, there's no question, but those are just some of the things that I was thinking about as you guys were talking. One one thing it makes me think about, Khadija, um, again, if we're just trying to figure out where does, how does the status quo survive such a shock, right? Which is the kind of fascinating thing that it can. Um, and, you, and you're pointing to a bunch of different, really powerful reasons. And one of them, though, if we think about like the data reason, which might not probably isn't the most important one, but uh, the the administrative data, especially that then you know, in situations now that tends to run a lot of these um, AI systems, and AI systems are use use different math, but are very similar to the same kinds of to essentially what actuaries used to do. Um, so, so there's a kind of straight line from the work of from actuarial prediction systems to AI prediction systems in a lot of stuff now. And um, a lot of the critiques we hear reasonably about AI systems is that they're they draw on biased data or bad data. And the bias often is not like in its collection as such, or it's not that the that it was badly put together. It's that the categories that it uses carry the bias to begin with. Um, so in the, the historical case, the, the clearest way to think about this um, 
is in the category of whiteness. So um, historians of the 19th century will tell you that like whiteness has not always meant the same thing, that the different groups of people have been accepted into and out of whiteness. Uh, and that's not just, that didn't stop happening in the 19th century. It's clear in the 20th century too. We see different groups of people accepted into and opting in and out of whiteness. Um, but for life insurance companies, that it really mattered who and how they did those classifications. Um, and one of my favorite discoveries was the work of an MBA student at Penn, a guy named uh, Lawrence Napoleon Brown, who um, went in and he took a famous life insurance scientist's data in which he would, showed all these different white racial stocks. And it was being used as a kind of anti-eugenic argument. Um, but he, he took uh, another source and he put the mortality rates for African-Americans in next to all of the other white subgroups and they fit inside. And this for me was one of the most powerful arguments that, um, that by, by claiming that there was a, a homogenous white group and then there was a homogenous black group, it justified the claim that blacks were inherently uh, less likely, that they inherently had a, a, um, a lesser lifespan and therefore should be uh, penalized. But when you questioned that category, opened up the white subcategory, for instance, you started to see that actually there was a lot more overlap and that that was the arbitrary distinction of those firm racial categories that caused and justified the discrimination as much as any kind of objective data. And so like when we're, when we're done with all this, if you're still using the same set of categories to organize your data, that carries with it a certain kind of political status quo. And it can play, it can play in, in various different ways. So COVID is another good example where the mor morbidity and mortality of people of color has been horrible. It's been so high. And if you say, okay, well then people of color are more likely to, um, to, to contract and possibly die of COVID, then you say, then it's easy to jump from that and say, oh, well then therefore it's being a person of color. That's the problem. But it's actually that they're essential workers. Um, so, you know, you've obscured the most important part in your category of bias that, you know, they're, they're essential workers. And that is the feature that's causing them to be exposed um, and have higher morbidity and then often higher mortality. I think there's probably a story to be, I don't know, I'm not yet qualified to tell it, but there will be a story to be told when we're all through this about the um, the idea of that black people were immune to COVID early on in the um, in the pandemic. Um, I was just recently reading uh, Rena Hogarth's Medicalizing Blackness, and she talks about how in the 18th century, there were all of these stories regularly propounded by uh, slave owners that Africans were inherently uh, resistant to yellow fever and to other malarial diseases, but particularly the yellow fever. Um, and that this was then a justification for using enslaved people in pestilential work that had no particular basis, but it, was, it justified the kinds of story that was being told. So I've, I've not investigated this, but when I do see people talk about that myth 
that Black people were not subject to COVID. It's often pitched as disinformation and sometimes in-group disinformation. Um, but I wonder, and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there's going to be a, a different story told about how those who needed essential workers to continue being essential workers were, um, or at least not unhappy with that particular story being told. I don't know if anyone else actually knows anything about it. Well, I was just going to add, like, on the story of COVID-19 data and, like, disaggregating the racial category into this question of, like, people's work and kind of their side of living. Like, even the stuff around prisons is kind of, you know, where the everybody is transient. So, like, where are the, where are the prisoners going when they're discharged? Where are, you know, the correctional officers going home to? And there's not a lot of good uh, data, you know, public technology data collection projects that are disaggregating that. And I know that it's true that a lot of the bias happens on the level of classification, but I do think when you're looking at the, well, I guess this was part of the classification, but I know a friend of mine was doing a project with students and they were finding that, um, the category of other was basically when they just couldn't figure out like what kind of person of color they were. Um, and it's just a little bit random. So they did, they did a trial where they put in as Pacific Islander. And then I think part of the Lakota tribes and they had all of these different test runs. And then a lot of times they just wouldn't register as anything other than other, like it didn't fit into the category neatly. Um, but we're at the 54 minute mark. And so I just had two, I had one last question and then I wanted to give you guys a chance to recommend, um, something to our listeners. But one was just on the thing about the middle passage. It made me think of, um, the other week we were talking to Sawande Mustakim, who wrote a book, Slavery at Sea, Terror, Sex, and Sickness in the Middle Passage. And in there she's talking about, um, Zong, when a whole bunch of um, enslaved people were thrown overboard. And then after that, they mandated that um, physicians have to be placed on every trip to um, kind of certify the health of all the captive people. And just there seems to be this ongoing relationship between physicians, the actuarial, the actuaries, and this kind of level of like carceral violence. Um, and just thinking about the history of psychiatry, Megan, or to you, Dan, just generally about quantification, what is this, what is this opening in medicine to this kind of evaluation of human life? I think it has to do with the idea of expertise, of absolute and final expertise, complete knowledge. And, uh, you know, we lack a priesthood in a way, but we do have physicians and we do have scientists who are the new priests. Uh, and so we look to them for truths that may not actually be ascertainable. Oof. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, one, I, I, I kind of a different and parallel argument would be that this is a language of power often. Um, the, like one of the reasons you you understand why Du Bois is doing the kind of work that he's doing against Hoffman at first is because he recognizes that like these that data gathering is a tool that can win people's ear. Like the reason Hoffman goes out and does all of the the library making that he does, the reason he like wanders around cemeteries which are uh, useful to him because they're racially segregated in the South and gathers data from straight off graveyard stones is that he knows that his boss at the Prudential is going to be more readily swayed if he can bring numbers or um, public health nurses in the early 20th century ally with some statisticians 
to to do some research about their work because they think rightly that if they can make this into data it will probably get them something it'll get them support for the kind of work that they're doing the the inherent danger in all of this is that it means that the only thing you can means you're basing your outcomes on the things that can be quantified well and uh, as Khadija was pointing out, right, like that depends in part on there being already attention to the right set of things, that you have the right kind of data sets already being constructed. Um, and the, the real danger for me is when you refuse to value things if there aren't data about them, that, um, that starts a kind of self-perpetuating cycle in which things that are already not valued and therefore not collected are continue to be undervalued. Um, and so you, you lead to greater data inequality, which can then support other kinds of inequality. I just, I wanted to ask one last question, which uh, you mentioned in the book, Dan, about the kind of creation of this surveillance state by these insurance companies in a way that I find uh, really interesting. The, the discourse, I think, whether, you know, like in the 90s in reference to the Soviet Union or, or after the Patriot Act in, in the early 2000s, where privacy becomes this concept of privacy from the government um, seems to be very forgetful of this history. I, I myself was unaware of the ways that like these, these kind of insurance companies had built kind of massive surveillance states to kind of collect data. And it connects a little bit to what you were talking about in terms of how what's happening with, you know, AI, machine learning, whatever you want to call it now uh, maps very linearly onto what was happening in the kind of uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, yeah, no. The when when we think about privacy and we think about surveillance, when we are only thinking about the the formal state, we end up missing a, a significant part of the picture. So um, the throughout much of the 19th century except for a census every 10 years, the central state government often didn't know a whole lot about most people. Um, probably local towns and boards through their various forms of welfare knew more about the poor. And of course they knew more about those who were incarcerated and they knew more about um, those who were sick. So certain subpopulations, but they didn't know a lot about most people uh, yet. There were pub, um, private, uh, corporate people who knew a lot about everybody. Uh, and that was life insurance companies. Um, you want to think about this life insurance, what in the 19th century and early 20th century was a kind of thing everybody needed to have in part because very few people had savings uh, or even access to savings in a lot of cases. And this was the primary mechanism by which you would get that. And then the other way, the other like big data gatherer that it's still with us today, very much so that we all experience and come to dread is the credit reporting agencies. Uh, and they also, back then, gathered data about individuals to determine who would then be able to get credit. And that, um, as we all know, right, like now rules over so many decisions in our lives, like your credit score can determine whether or not you can rent a apartment, buy a home, on what terms, uh, get utilities, um, right? Things that, that you need to live are in some ways um, premised on getting a good score from the FICO algorithm. We are at the hour 
Mark. So, uh, Megan, do you have any any things you've you've been reading that that you kind of uh, want to share with the with the audience? Um, sure. This is not specifically on topic, and it's it's Even not better. on the same kind <laughs> of uh, intellectual bandwidth, but <laughs> kind of nice for this period. I've been rereading Louise Erdrich's uh, The Birchbark House series, which is a uh, series written for young young adult readers, and I'm I'm rereading it to my five year old daughter. Uh, we started out with um, uh, the Little House books earlier this fall and uh, initially they were delightful and then the family moves to Kansas and they're encroaching on Indian territory and every time a Native American is mentioned in these books the word savage comes up every single time Uh, and it was just kind of too cringe-inducing to keep reading so I switched over uh, to this series which is about an Ojibwa girl Um, and her family in 1851 and 1852 and gives you exactly the opposite side of the story from what Laura Ingalls Wilder is going through. And it it has the same childhood innocence. Um, It has very sophisticated, wonderful writing. And actually, my five-year-old is a lot more engaged with Omakayas and her world than she ever was with Laura and her world, which is interesting. That's a great recommendation. I didn't, I don't know those books, um, but I'm, no, um, my, my 10 year old, I don't know if it uh, would work, but I'll think about it. Um, I, I'm going to pick a book just to be kind of on topic, uh, but because I think it's also a wonderful book. And um, I would think people who enjoyed this podcast might enjoy this book as well, or at least find it um to be like thought-provoking so there's this novel called by the novelist helen phillips and it's called the beautiful bureaucrat um great name yeah yeah, exactly right you just like you instantly want to pick it up and read this thing um but it's it uh what what phillips does is really get at the way in which like a bureaucratic system can induce all of the gamut of emotions um and it and like she she it's a story about life and death in the files through filing about birth and the the like really gets into like the animal nature of humanity through a story about people working in an obscure bureaucratic system and so it just does it all perfectly and beautifully and phillips is a beautiful writer um she also has a, a new novel out called The Need, which is similarly amazing and terrifying, uh, but also I think the novel which best captures the experience of having a young, well, maybe not best, but one of the most recent best encounters ca- of capturing the like animal feeling of having a child and the, the feeling of like what it means to be, to have like this other creature that is dependent upon you. All right. I I am the one person on this podcast right now with zero kids. So I feel at least equipped to respond to that. Khadija, did you want to say something? No, I was going to say thank you. That's beautiful. I mean, 
just like on a total side note, I, I am kind of obsessed with the movie Zootopia. <laughs> and it's just fascinating to me. I don't know if you guys remember or saw the movie, but there's this part where they do a school play and there's one that's an astronaut. What is it? Oh, one is an astronaut, one is a cop, and one is an actuary. And I was just like, <laughs> what a beautiful embodiment of like liberal bourgeois democracy. Uh, and that just came to mind when you were discussing the children's book. But honestly, guys, this was, you were so generous with this discussion and I really appreciate it. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I don't know if you want to share either your social media or some something that you're currently working on that you want to encourage people to check out or plug your articles before we close. Uh, sure. I'm I'm uh, Dan Bauk on Twitter, and um, I would love for you to go to censusstories.us, uh, and you can read about. Um, I'm doing a, I've been doing a series of essays for the last couple of years. That's going they will eventually transmute into a book, and uh, it's all about trying to figure out how to tell the stories about ordinary people through the data records that they leave, and the stories about um, the making of the data, which is the U.S. Census. That sounds really cool, Dan. I'm going to go for go and look at that. Um, if you want to take a look at some fact sheets about mental health policy, you can Google Wild Cornell Institute of Psychiatry uh, and then click on mental health policy. Um, currently, I'm paying a lot of attention to the opioid overdose epidemic because Purdue is getting ready to settle its bankruptcy. Uh, and uh, they have all kinds of things up their sleeve that are rather greenwashy. So I'm uh, I'm getting ready to do some posting there. Can I can I add one more thing? Because uh, Megan got me thinking and realizing that I should also say to your listener to your listeners, um, talk to your uh, your Congress people and your senators and tell them that you want to make sure that enough time and attention is given to the processing of the census data, um, because a lot of people have been moving around and attempting to gather data about every single person is always an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, and it's only more difficult in the middle of a pandemic and with an administration who's bent on seeking and on sowing um, chaos in the entire bureaucratic system. So um, so get get on the, on the phone with people. Uh, it's going to determine whether or not we all are represented properly, whether resources go to the communities that deserve and need those resources. All right. Thank you all. This is We Be Imagining podcast. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and the Columbia University website, Google Podcasts. Please rate us, review us, and hit us up at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. You could also follow us on social media at webeimagining on Instagram and on Twitter, and me personally at Up From The Cracks on Twitter. That's it, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.